Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air again. I know it's been quite a while since I was on the air with you all last, but I'm glad to be back on. And here we are discussing great information about Eric Dolan's book, Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse. When I was on the air with you all last, we I mentioned to you all we would be discussing about a, uh, a fellow European who would take uh, the lighting of lighthouses to new heights. Well, we're going to learn about him today, and I hope that you all will find it worth interesting, uh, because when I first read this book, I learned a great deal about this man, but when I first learned about him, it was when my wife and I vacationed in Maine seven years ago, and then when I came upon this book, Brilliant Beacons, a few months after, or not, or not long after the trip, that's when I learned more about him. So, why not find out who this fella is? So, here we go, folks, with uh, today's uh, podcast session. While America's lighthouses were installed with Winslow Lewis's lower-tier argon lamps into the 19th century's midway point, the British and the French continued advancing their way up the ladder and devising new illumination methods. And yes, Winslow Lewis's lower-tier argon lamp was revolutionary for its time, but it didn't yield the same results, or didn't even come close to yielding the same results as Aimee Argon's argon lamp had done, given that Aimee's was based off of using parabolic reflectors, whereas Winslow Lewis's lamp revolved more around spherical, while they both had their advantages, and yes, had their disadvantages. A fellow French, what fellow French inventor made the biggest impact in regards to illumination methods? His name was Augustin Jean Fresnel. For starters, he was born on May 10th, 1788 in the French province of Normandy. I think we all should know about Normandy. When I think of Normandy, I think of D-Day, June 6, 1944, Liberation Day. The French were finally liberated from being under Nazi control. So what do we know? Um, a French inventor, he's not just an ordinary French inventor, he's going to become a very prominent French inventor, also was born in Normandy. But interesting enough, um, when he was born, things in France were not uh, very good. Because a year later, a bloody revolution takes place to where King Louis XVI and his wife, I believe her name would have been Queen Marie Antoinette, were beheaded, along with several other top-level um, class uh, figures. It really was a revolution about overthrowing monarchy, about overthrowing people with power. The only problem was that in that revolution, it was one thing to remove people of power, but there was no game plan ahead of time devised as to as to saying okay this is what's going to be put in place of the existing government if you don't have something in play already to replace 
a leader who is not popular with his or her people, then how is government going to function when new leadership takes over? Um, you know, the world has seen, real quick, not to get off track, but just real quick, the world has seen its fair share of dictators over the years, um, most notably like Saddam Hussein, who ruled Iraq for well over 20 years. He was a ruthless dictator, but someone once said, it's one thing to take Saddam Hussein out, but if you do that, what are you going to replace him with? So in other words, just because you repl you oust a dictator, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to flock to a Republican form of government. History has often told us that democracies are the most fragile forms of government, and they truly are. And as we all know, in some countries, ruling people by means of uh, dictatorship is the only way to keep people together. So, it's amazing that uh, Augustin Jean Fresnel survived the French Revolution, or let alone he and his family survived. Um, we do know that he is the old, that he is one of four boys. He does experience a great share of medical frailties from childhood into adulthood. He didn't start beginning to read until around the age of eight, folks. You think about all that has been going on in France. Think about it. You've got this revolution, and you're not just overthrowing people, but how about destroying buildings? Buildings that would contain buildings that might be like libraries that we know today or the equivalent of a bookstore. So people aren't able to get access to um, books. They're not able to acquire information because a whole system of government has been deposed. And people are still fighting over who's going to have some form of power and how is government itself going to function. But despite the fact that um, Augustin Jean Fresnel doesn't start beginning to read until around the age of eight, many of his friends see something in him that is going to um, make his future become one that holds a lot of prominence, a lot of true significance. They dub him a genius. Do, how so? Well, many of his friends start seeing him constructing, they, they see his unique abilities, one of them being that of constructing mechanical devices. I don't know of very many young age children who can do this kind of thing, but if there are children out there who can construct mechanical devices at a young age, more power to them. I would definitely say that they that there is a genius like traits in them. But then again, all of us are born with some very very unique special teams uh, characteristics. Around the age of 13, young Fresnel attends a premier science and he attends premier science and engineering schools in France where he came up with unique solutions to difficult math and technical problems. I find that very impressive because if he is able to show the teachers strategies that they have not come across beforehand, then the teachers themselves should take this seriously and say, hey, this young man has got potential. He might be teaching us things that we don't know ourselves. And whatever he is teaching us, we can use towards future groups of classroom students coming in.
and by the age of 21, Augustin Jean Fresnel graduates from France's National School of Bridges and Highways, where he then went on to work for the French government, where his duties involved overseeing buildings of roads and bridges. Well, when I think of road, of uh, bridges especially, I tend to think of civil engineers. Uh, civil engineers also design buildings, but they are most, notable, most notably known for designing uh, bridges and helping out perhaps with roads. You know, engineering involves so many things. I mean, yes, you've got your electrical engineers, you've got your mechanical, civil, you've got ocean engineering, aviation, aeronautical, traffic, ceramic, metallic engineering. I mean, I, the list goes on and on, and you're, many of you are wondering, how do you know about so many of these fields? Well, I do have uh, friends of mine who uh, studied engineering and work uh, either in an engineering firm or, or just do something with that uh, field of expertise. And it does take special people to become engineers. A lot of math involved. Um, but then again, you know, when it comes to math, a lot of us use some form of math on a daily basis, even if we're not um, engineers. You know, for Augustin Jean Fresnel to oversee the building of roads and bridges, you know, on one hand, that does seem like an exciting job. But it turns out that Mr., um, or I should say, young Fresnel, given his title, was superintendent. Ironically, he didn't find the job position all that exciting. So during his spare time, he focuses his interests in science and started experimenting with optics. Well, what are optics? Optics are the scientific study of sight. Okay, when we see something, we're, it's like a sight. You know, we're, we're looking at what's in front of us, not just so much um, the trees or, or, say, ocean waves if we're at the beach or, or what you call like on a scenic um, byway trail with uh, mountains from the distance. But the study of sight is more about the light, the presence of light around us. And not just the presence of light dead center, but how about the overall behavioral patterns of how light itself functions along with properties of transmission. In other words, what is light going to give off? Well, we've got a lot more to learn about how light itself functions. Whom did um, Augustin Jean Fresnel turn to for expertise with regards to um, getting a better understanding behind um, the overall behavior of light itself. He turned to a French physicist who wasn't that much older than him named Francois Arago. Besides being a physicist, Arago was also a mathematician and astronomer. He was only two years older than Augustin. Fresnel, he was two years older than uh, Fresnel, rather, I should say. Arago went on to conduct research that focused on the pressure of steam at different temperatures to the velocity of sound. I don't know much about the uh, pressure of steam or let alone velocity of sound, but that sounds very um, revolutionary onto itself. Um, and if there are people out there who have come up with their own formulas on velocity of sound, which they have, not just in recent years, but in years past. Um, they are very uh, gifted people, to say the least.
what did Fresnel himself focus a great deal on involving light behavior? Now, I mentioned earlier about the behavior of light, so let's let's try to come up with a term that uh, talks about light behavior. I learned this term uh, when I was in college when I took an intro to astronomy class, and it is mentioned quite a bit, especially for those who who are studying this term if they are in, say, the world of physics, but it's called diffraction. What is diffraction? It's a process that occurs when a wave or a series of waves encounter an obstacle or an opening, but diffraction itself is often defined as the bending of waves around corners of an obstacle or through an aperture an aperture is, is another word for a hole where the light itself travels. Where light itself travels, but the diffracting object or the hole by itself goes about becoming a secondary source resulting in wave propagation. Wave propagation basically is multiple ways in which the waves themselves travel. And so, in other words, there's no one primary method for how a wave travels. And I know many of you are thinking, when I say wave, I'm sure most of you are thinking, oh, beach wave. Not necessarily. Diffraction occurs with all waves, including sound, water, and electromagnetic, for example. So there we have it. Diffraction does not have one finite method in terms of... Um, just one type of wave. It, it's infinite. It, it's, it occurs with all waves. In a sense, that might be the beauty behind diffraction itself, but basically it's the process that occurs when a wave encounters an obstacle or an opening, and it's often defined as the bending of waves. So in other words, it may look like it's going to stay in one shape, but somehow the wave itself is going to end up bending it's going to bend to where it's either going to um, travel through a hole through which the light source itself travels, but once it um, leaves out, then it will result in wave propagation. Now, Fresnel's work on diffraction alone allowed him to also study and improve upon the wave theory of light. What did this theory? What is the wave theory of light? I, I didn't know anything about this theory until I re first read the book uh, a few years back, and then when I uh, reread what was necessary for today's podcast discussion. And I don't imagine that many of you have probably come across this theory before, and that's okay. But I am here to tell you all about it. The wave theory of light is a theory that allows for light itself to be represented as a spectrum. Now, when I think of spectrum, I think of broadband. Broadband, you know, no, um, no true boundary. But basically, it's a, this theory allows for light to be represented as a spectrum where, the, where there's broadband of frequencies, light frequencies, rather. Sometimes we can see light that's visible, and other times we can't. And when we can't see it, it's infrared. That's one interpretation of it is that it's uh, infrared. You know, we can see light up close. Like, for example, right now I'm looking at a, a lamp with a light on. Um, on the other hand, there are plenty of uh, sources of light 
where we could see it somewhat from a distance, but we really can't see it, can't see its true visibility. And when that's the case, then that's what we would refer to as infrared. And while Fresnel himself focused his energies on theory of light, including diffraction, as you know, the bending of the waves, Francois Arago encouraged him to join him in improving the parabolic reflectors that were in existence. You know, those parabolic reflectors that I mentioned from the previous podcast were the ones that, um, that kept the uh, light shining from one point. They didn't bounce around from, they didn't bounce in an upward downward position to where um, the best light source they could give was either less than 50% or 50% at best. The parabolic reflectors truly exceeded 50% of um, a light's um, brightness to shine off of a beam. As for Augustin Jean Fresnel, did he want to improve the existing parabolic reflectors? No. But he had a different mission, and his mission rather was one that sought to replace reflectors altogether. How so? He sought to place a lens in front of the flame, that is the light. And of course, I know many of you all were thinking there just a second ago, a flame like an actual fire being lit in the fireplace? No. Light is another word for flame in this sense, being the light. So he wanted to place a lens in front of the flame. The reflectors yielded only about half of the light. Okay, so about 50% right there. But for Fresnel, he knew that the thicker the lens itself was, if, if there were thicker lenses, more than 50% of the light itself could be let through. In other words, not just let through, but that it could hit the object. So, in order to really make this a dream come true, he's, Fresnel goes about creating what's called the lenses-by-steps process. This is a very fascinating process, folks. The lenses-by-steps process is one that retained all refractive properties. Fresnel's solution to the problem involved taking a central bullseye lens. I know when, it, when you think of bullseye, I'm thinking of something that's really big, central being in the middle, another term for center. But the bullseye lens, the central bullseye lens gets encircled by what's called concentric circles. I didn't know anything about concentric circles until I read the book. But these concentric circles are circles that have a common center. In other words, they never leave the center's um, sight. The circles overlap each other, but they all retain their um, common, um, common structure. So these concentric circles, the bullseye lens gets encircled by all these concentric circles with a common center. It also includes a triangular prism or I should say a three-sided prism that is a polyhedron made of a triangular base, translated copy, two three-faces joining corresponding sides. 
when the flame got placed behind the Fresnel lens at, a, at its exact focal length, light flowing from the flame would change direction as it passed through the bull's eye lens and prisms into what we now know are parallel rays. And what are parallel rays? They are two rays lying on the same line. They point in the same direction. They almost don't really even have an ending point. I know this is a lot to take in, but what's unique about this is that Fresnel himself was the first to apply these lenses, or what we call lenses by steps process, regarding lighthouse illumination. Other people had tried this before, but but to but to apply this in the sense of lighthouse illumination was very radical for its uh, day and time. Now, um, the Fresnel lenses used more light availability, and the beams were stronger, and they could travel much farther than beams from the best uh, parabolic reflectors. So that's very, uh, I'd say, revolutionary onto itself. So what makes the year 1823 so important? The first Fresnel lenses got placed in one of France's most prominent lighthouses, known as the Cordouan, located at the mouth of the Dronde Estuary in southwest France. Of course, there is a place in southwest France that um, Thomas Jefferson uh, visited very frequently called Bordeaux. And southwest France is known for, um, for its wineries. So whenever you... I've never been to France before, but I do know that if one were to visit France and they wanted to... Um, go to wineries uh, in southwest France there's the region known as the Rhone region or uh, Warrencone but uh, Bordeaux is there and there is a and Bordeaux is located in a port area in, of uh, southwest France so this uh, lighthouse in southwest France known as uh, Cordouan it dates back to the year 1611 and I, and I when I first learned about the year 1611 and how long this and how far back this lighthouse dates back to. Hard to believe that the English came to Jamestown, Virginia four years earlier. And here and here they were four years later in 1611 still struggling just to get by in terms of trying to find the right cash crop that would um, keep the colony afloat or let alone save the colony, which would eventually be tobacco. There was no true governing body in 1611. In other words, there was no House of Burgesses or what we know as the first Democratic General Assembly in the New World. That wouldn't be until 1619. Basically, Virginia was ruled under martial law from 1611 to 1619. So, anyways, this 223-foot-tall tower is constructed, and it's referred to as the Versailles of the Sea. How so? Well, the lighthouse had two fireplaces, a reception hall, side offices to marble everywhere. You know, when I think of marble, especially in uh, colonial Virginia times, I think of Williamsburg and the governor's palace. We were told that, for one, marble was expensive, and if one had a marble floor, they were very, very well off. 
but not even less than 1% of the population living in Williamsburg had marble. Most people in colonial days, their floor was probably either a dirt floor or wooden floor. But if you had a marble floor, you really did show off your true might and power. So, as for people living in France, especially in this region of France, if you, if you are working for the king and queen, or let alone the French government, and your position is that of high-end status, you're probably going to, you would probably be able to have access to this lighthouse, but not everybody does. But what's more unique about it is that in 1823, the first Fresnel lenses get placed in this lighthouse. And the Cordouan lighthouse used eight square lens panels, with each panel having a bullseye lens in the center, with prisms around it. The panels were arranged in a belt on the metal frame around the lamp in the center. Fresnel went about adding smaller lens panels, directing light traveling up from the lamp onto a group of inclined mirrors that reflected the beams toward the furthest point, being the horizon. The lens above and below were what were called inclined mirrors that directed light in its desired direction. I know it's a lot of information to take in, but we have to remember these brilliant beacon structures, regardless of whether they lie in Europe or in the United States, they all have a unique story to tell. You know, none of these lighthouses were installed with what we call uh, GE light bulbs, you know, the 40 and 60 watt bulbs that we often place in our lamps. That's not how lighting was done uh, back then, folks. But what other solution did Fresnel himself devise involving the travel of light? Fresnel knew if light traveled through a prism or glass surface, it would bend when passing by the first surface. But then it would throw back off from the second internal surface without absorbing it. And then it would bend again when leaving the third surface. So basically this is uh, coined as a pinball maneuver. Light can get bent more than 400, more than 45 degrees. Internal reflecting prisms rely on reflection, that meaning catoptric. Refraction is what's called dioptric in Greek. When you combine both um, reflection and um, refraction, it's referred to as catadioptric. So in other words, both refraction and reflection were dependent upon one another for this uh, travel of light. I know it's a very complicated system. I know it may not be the probably perhaps my best explanation. And yes, I'm not a physicist, but I can't admit that this is the best I could come up with. After all, as I said earlier, you know, these lighthouses, they do tell a story of their own. And after all, Augustin Jean Fresnel is doing something that is very revolutionary for its time because nobody else has ever really been able to attempt something like this until now. 
Considering just how much progress, along with innovations, that Augustin Jean Fresnel himself achieved during his, during his lifetime, I hate to tell you this, folks, but his life was cut short after a long battle with tuberculosis, which he succumbed to at age 39 on July 14, 1827. That's hard to believe that he died a year after Thomas Jefferson and John Adams did on July 4th of 1826. As a matter of fact, um, Marquis de Lafayette, whom uh, served in the American Revolution, I'm sure would have known this fella. And Marquis de Lafayette outlived him. But sadly, um, Augustin Jean Fresnel had battled tuberculosis all of his life. But yet, if it weren't for his um, success, I'm not sure who might have uh, been able to come up with um, as brilliant of a light solution like he did. Sure, I believe somebody else would have done it. It might have been a question of how long it might have taken before somebody else could have come up with the uh, strategies that he did. Maybe his brother, whom I had mentioned from a previous podcast, being Leonor Fresnel, could have done it. But I do know that by the mid-1830s, more French lighthouses became equipped with the Fresnel lenses, including um, the same for England and the Netherlands. Now, we do know that um, either just before, or, but most notably after um, Augustin uh, passed away, Fresnel lenses came in four orders or sizes, what we might think of today as like different types of uh, packages. And of course, we have to remember that not all lighthouses are going to use the same type of lens. I do know that when I'm back on the air again with you all next, we will talk more about uh, Fresnel lenses and because there's so much more to them than just the lights themselves. But what I do know is that um, is that the first four orders or sizes of Fresnel lenses were based on distance between lamp and inner surface of the lens. The first order was the most powerful, and it had the largest lens with interior diameter of close to six feet. These lenses would have been used for major seacoast lights, Perhaps lights like Boston's Lighthouse, Philadelphia, you know, uh, maybe Sandy Hook in northern New Jersey, not far from New York. Perhaps uh, Tybee Island's Lighthouse in Savannah, Georgia would have benefited from it. Even the Lighthouse in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. So it is fair to say that the... Um, that for the cities, the major port cities, would have benefited from the first order of uh, Fresnel um, lenses. Then you had something what was called like the fourth order, which were used for harbor lights, only a foot in diameter. But there again, it's it's also fair to say that perhaps even some of our major port cities might have also used a harbor light as well. So there we have it, folks. You know, none. We obviously know that no two lighthouses are alike, but we also know that um, what we've learned already is that. Um, is that the first uh, four orders of Fresnel lenses are not alike, and that they have uh, that their features are based on distance between lamp and inner surface of the lenses. I know this has been a short podcast, but um, but I wanted to let you all know that um, that I've uh, that that you all haven't been uh, forgotten. That um, I haven't forgotten about you all. Um, I know that um, 
there's more to life than podcasting, but I know many of you were probably wondering when I would be back on the air again next, but I'm glad that I could be on the air now. But when I am on again next, we're going to talk more about the Fresnel lenses and all the other features that come along with them. But we're also going to learn more about this new board that takes over, especially in 1852 when Stephen Pleasanton was um, finally forced to um, step down from the previous podcast I had discussed. We're going to um, learn about what the new board um, comes up with in terms of um, governing strategies because, you know, our country is growing a lot by 1852. We have at least, I'd say, about 31 states in the Union. California in 1850 was the 31st state admitted to the Union. 1850 was also the year of the uh, Compromise of 1850, which was also the last attempt on Congress's part to keep slavery out of politics. So as we're going into the early 1850s, you know, times are becoming more and more um, challenging between North and South, and it really is only a matter of time before a civil war does break out, or let alone secession. I mean, it's these are not uh, pleasant times, but at the same time, at least we have a better sense of hope now that um, a new uh, change of guard is taking and in, coming into play and is now serious about the Fresnel lenses and knows that, hey, our lighthouses are not in good shape. 40% of them have some form of internal damage, structural deficiency. We need to do something about this now. Otherwise, um, if we don't do anything about it now, we could be in um, greater trouble. So, yes, it's tragic that Augustin Fresnel's life has been cut short by tuberculosis, but he has set the stage not just for other European nations, but he's now given new uh, governmental figures in the United States better leeway or better um, measures to work with. So when I'm back on the air again next, we're going to talk more about the Fresnel lenses, and that, and we may be surprised to know that there could be perhaps more than four orders of Fresnel lenses. So we've covered a lot of ground, and I look forward to being back on the air again next. Uh, take care and enjoy the rest of your day, and wherever you all are, stay safe.